where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. On your screen in, in front of you, you have uh, the cover of a book called Malala Yousafzai, Warrior with Words. And we are going to read part of that story this morning as we are continuing in our sermon series of people and practices of peace. Um, we're going to hear a little bit from three different, different people about the work of education in building a world of peace. And this story uh, will be particularly interesting maybe for some of the younger people in your household. So if you have others around, you might invite them to come sit with you. Malala is a miracle in pink. Malala is a warrior with words. She did not celebrate her 16th birthday with a sleepover, but with a stand-up. She stood up in front of the whole world to prove that words have power. Malala stood up in front of hundreds of young people and world leaders gathered at the United Nations. We will bring change through our voice, she said. She asked every nation to make it possible for every child to go to school for free. Every child in every country to have free school. Our words can change the world, she said. Where did Malala learn what she could do with her voice and her words? Malala was born in Mangora on the River Swat in northern, pa northern Pakistan. She remembers my Swat as a land of sweet green valleys and mountains shimmering with snow where people came to refresh their spirits and be together with their families. Malala's mother was the heart of their home. She was quiet, but she is a strong and determined supporter of her daughter. Malala's two little brothers kept chickens. Malala kept books and also a notebook filled with her own words. Malala's father had named her after Malala of Maiwand, a brave woman whose poetry helped save her village from invaders more than a hundred years ago. When the Taliban came to power in the Swat Valley, they said girls should not go to school. Malala's father was the principal of a school for girls. He encouraged his daughter to tell the world about those difficult days. And so Malala wrote a blog that was printed in her native Urdu and also in English by the British Broadcasting Corporation. She used the name Gol Mackay so that no one would know who was really writing the blog. I was getting ready for school, Malala wrote, when I remembered that our principal had told us not to wear uniforms and to come to school wearing normal clothes instead. So Malala dressed in her favorite pink and the other girls also wore bright colors. But during the morning assembly, we were told to wear, not to wear colorful clothes as the Taliban would object to it. 
the Taliban ordered everyone to obey very strict rules. They, should, they said girls should not be educated and women should not work outside their homes. Malala wrote that this was a very dark time. We have some people who are afraid of ghosts and some people who are afraid of spiders. And in SWAT, we were afraid of humans like us. Just before winter vacation, the Taliban announced that all schools for girls in the SWAT Valley would close on January 15th. Many of Malala's friends were afraid. Only 11 students came to a class that normally had 27 children. That spring, when Pakistan's army began fighting the Taliban, Malala and her family left the Swat Valley. Leaving home was like we would be apart from our heart, Malala wrote, because our home was our heart. I had to leave my books and my bag and my school. When the fighting was over, Malala's family returned to Mangora. The destruction made them weep. The house was in chaos. Her brother's chickens had died. But miraculously, the books in her room had not been touched. They're very precious, she wrote. Her father's school opened again, but many other schools had been destroyed. Malala was sad and angry. She began writing and speaking out to everyone who would listen, and she did not hide her name anymore. Malala wanted to prove that peaceful words have power over violence. Every day she went to school with her pink backpack and filled the pages of her notebook with words. Education is our basic right, she wrote. She won Pakistan's first National Youth Award for Peace in 2011. And we are stopping Malala's story there today uh, many of you may know or remember the rest of how that story went and that Malala won, uh, jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014. And we're going to hear a little bit more about the person that co-won that with her today. As we think about the work of educating for peace, we're going to talk a bit more about somebody I had not heard much about, Kailash Satyarthi, who won the Nobel Peace Prize along with Malala. The two of them didn't work together, but the work that they did was similar, and they continue to hold each other in high regard today. Satyarthi is Indian, and his reforms have been focused on ending child labor and also ensuring a universal rights to education for children in India and around the world. As we think about this work and this call of educating for peace, though, um, as well as just this general peacemaking work that we are all involved in at some way or another, I actually want to start by thinking a bit differently about how we sustain our vision. And so I'm going to start in a place that uh, probably seems a little bit unusual for 21st century Christians in our progressive to mainline tradition. We are going to start with the book of Revelation. We don't read from Revelation often. 
and thanks to what has been a millennia of um, dubious interpretation, the work is layered with these misconceptions. And so that we can hear it with fresh ears and maybe find a way to be refreshed by it, I want to start by kind of clearing some things up and maybe laying some groundwork for the words that we're about to read. And I want to start by saying that if you are uneasy with the book of Revelation, you are not alone. It was the most controversial piece of writing to be included in the Bible. Even in the fourth century, when the people got together and they decided what was going to become Holy Scripture, there were people who argued against including Revelation for the very same reasons that we struggle with it today. The violent imagery, the description of God as vengeful, which we think contradicts the God that Jesus portrays in the Gospels. The confusing metaphors and the symbolism and how sometimes it's impossible to tell what is meant to be metaphor and what is meant to be literal. Those are all things that people were noticing and talking about from the very beginning. And so it's important to start by saying that Revelation isn't really a blueprint for the apocalypse, and it doesn't claim to be. It does contain images of the end times, but it does this the same way that the other prophets do, to remind us that ultimately all time is God's time. What we think of as a book, Revelation was originally a letter, and it was a letter to a community. So it was maybe something more like um, a pastoral newsletter article. It was written by a Christian prophet named John, who is not the same John who wrote either the Gospel of John or the letters of John. I also think it's important to remember that Revelation does talk a lot about crisis and upheaval, but it's not just because John was predicting crisis and upheaval. He was talking to people who were already living in it. A pretty widely accepted dating of Revelation puts it around 95 AD. And we know the location is in the Roman province of Asia, which is about modern-day Turkey. And so what that means historically is that within a generation, the people that John was writing to had experienced the Emperor Nero, who we know as being very cruel and well-known for his persecution of Christians. They had experienced uh, endless internal and external wars in the Roman Empire. They were living through religious strife between the traditional Roman uh, royal religion Jews and Christians. They had lived through the eruption of Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii, and then a resulting famine from all the ash in the air. And so it's amidst what felt very much like the end of the world already. John, who was also exiled away from his community, wrote this letter, laying out what he saw as a vision of how God was still and would continue to work in the world. Let's hear those words today. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples. And God himself will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And then the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who persist will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. May this be a word of God for us today. What we have in the 22 chapters of Revelation, and we read from the 21st, is a vision. And I want to play with that word a bit. Because it is a vision in the sense that the author John saw these images and these words unfolding in front of him. And he understood them to be from Jesus the Christ. But it's also a vision in the sense that he lays out a path forward. Some of you might be in the practice of creating vision boards, which are collages of words and images that visually lay out your dreams and your hopes and your goals for the future. Or you might work for or run a company that has a vision statement where they're laying out where they're going and what they plan to accomplish in the world. That's what John is doing in Revelation. If you were going to build a vision board for the kingdom of God, I wonder what it would include today. And if we were together in the sanctuary, I would be tempted to have us all collage this because sometimes we have to remember what it is that we are putting our hope in. That's the beauty of the biblical prophets. What they do is lay out a vision for us, a way of being in the world. Kailash Satyarthi also had a vision. His vision was of a world where child labor didn't exist and where all children would have access to a high-quality education. There's a story that he tells about how he woke up to this injustice in the world and the difference between what childhood meant for some kids compared to other kids. He talks about when he was about five years old and he was on his way to school one morning when he saw another child who was also about five working in the family's cobbler shop 
which wasn't so much a shop as uh, a stand. Satyarthi had grown up with the understanding that when he was five, he would go to school. And he thought that that is what all kids did. So when he saw this other kid about his age working while he was on his way to school, he stopped to ask his dad and then the cobbler and then his teacher why the boy didn't go to school. Each time he was told some variation of, that's just the way the world is. Some families are too poor to send their kids to school. Satyarthi talks about how he wrestled with this and he walks through sort of the ways that he tried to talk to people about this and his five-year-old self wondered why this couldn't be changed. But it was within the year that he was walking home in the rain with his little rain jacket and his umbrella when he saw something that really emphasized to him the work that needed to be done. There in the rain, he watched the cobbler beating his son, the boy that Satyarthi had seen and sort of become a bit obsessed with. Satyarthi stopped and he asked, why was the boy being beaten? And the cobbler explained that the boy had been left to watch the cobbler stand for the afternoon. And he had been given a tarp to cover all of those shoes if it rained. But when the downpour started, the young boy didn't cover the shoes. Instead, he used that tarp and he covered himself. And now all of the pairs of shoes that belonged to the other people, all of those shoes that people had brought to them to be repaired were ruined. And the cobbler would be expected to pay for the shoes. The family didn't have that kind of money. They barely had enough to feed themselves every day. And so this act, this childish act, literally endangered the whole family. It is the kind of experience that would shape someone, I think. I think you would either grow up hardened to the realities of the world and insistent that things will never change, or you would grasp onto a vision of a different kind of world order. The difference, I think, between prophets and dreamers is that prophets are willing to do the work to build the better world. Satyarthi isn't religious, and so he probably wouldn't use the language of prophet. But in his words, I see the same type of prophetic ability. He speaks with clarity about the world that is. He talks about the dangers of our economic system, our worldwide economic system, which is built on cheap or free labor. And as I read uh, some of his writings, I thought about how we're seeing that illuminated again today. Here in the US, we see it with how some school districts like ours are able to provide every child with an iPad or a laptop, while others are running device drives just to get enough leftover technology 
that maybe a family can connect and participate in school. I think about it in the way that it is so much harder to do school today if you have one or two working parents in the home. And then there was an article on the Colorado Public Radio blog, I don't know, maybe a couple days ago, profiling how families were coping with this distance learning among everything else and the economic upheaval, the worries about health. And I remember one family in particular uh, jumped out at me, and it was a family in Poudre Canyon, which is a rural part of the state, who has a large red X taped to their kitchen counter, because that is the place where they have to set the laptop in order to get internet for anybody to be able to connect for school or work throughout the day. It can be discouraging in a time like ours when there is already so much going on to ponder these qualities for very long. And so what's striking to me about Satyarthi is that he sees all of the injustices up close and personal in his country and around the world. He has physically rescued kids from sweatshops. And he has talked to large multinational corporations about how they might build a company that doesn't require slavery to turn a profit. He has faced all of this and he knows where we are at. And he stands fiercely in the belief that not only is this wrong, but it is fixable. Over and over again, the thing he says in every speech is child labor will end in my lifetime. Bold words. He doesn't quite have that hellfire and brimstone that we get in Revelation, but he is clearly speaking from the same place. This is where we are. There are tears and pain and injustices, but a new way isn't just possible, it is inevitable. And so in times like these, when we collectively seem to bounce between energy for doing the work that needs to be done and exhaustion over how much there is still to do, I want to offer this morning the perspective of these biblical and modern prophets who despite the chaos and the injustices of their times have insisted that the road that we are on is the right one. <laughs> 